We have two scripture readings that the sermon will come from this morning, and the first is found in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if you indeed can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. As we read this text, as we listen to it, pay attention to the words faith and promise and how many times they come up and how they come up. Paul writing to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. May God bless to our understanding the reading from this his holy word. 
Amen. Galatians is not a friendly letter. It is a letter of rebuke with some anger. Paul is ticked, and he is very upset at the people in the church in Galatia. Twice he calls the Galatians foolish. And he is not trying to win popularity points. He wants to know how, if they have become bewitched, how they became bewitched as if there's some kind of spiritual spell that's been cast on them. He wants to know why they've stopped living by faith and now they have returned to living by the law, by the rules. And really what we've heard and what we've just read this morning in Galatians is just a continuation of the final verse of chapter 2 where Paul says that, you know, if we could do it with God by the law, then the grace of God is nullified and there's no reason for Christ to die. Why did Christ die on the cross? If we can make it on our own, then what's the purpose of that? Paul calls Galatians foolish for thinking they can make it on their own by keeping the Jewish law and rules. And in order to wise them up, Paul takes them back to Abraham, the father of their faith. If you want to find out who the father of, let's say, modern science is, you go back maybe to Galileo. The father of modern American democracy, maybe Thomas Jefferson. The father of um, art, modern art, Leonardo da Vinci maybe. The father of rock and roll. Who would you say is the father of rock and roll? Who would you go back to? Chuck Berry, yes. I think Chuck Berry. Maybe Bill Haley. Anyway, you can talk about that later. That's not the point. But uh, a lot of people, 830 said Elvis too. You can argue about that. But for the Jewish person, there is no argument. Abraham is the father of the faith. When John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, he told the Jews that were coming, he said, don't presume to have Abraham as your father because God can raise up children out of these rocks on the ground. One time, uh, and the point was that they saw Abraham as their father. One time, some Jewish leaders were talking with Jesus, and they made clear to him, you know what, Abraham is our father. In fact, Abraham's the father not just of the Jewish faith, but the Christian faith. Yeah, you've got to go back past Jesus. You've got to go back, back past David and Moses, all the way to Abraham. Did you hear Paul, in verse 8, say that God announced the gospel beforehand to Abraham? I mean, didn't the gospel just start with Jesus? One time Jesus said to Jewish leaders, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And that blew their minds because here's Jesus in his early 30s and Abraham lived centuries before. How could that be? And then Jesus dropped this bomb. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham is mentioned in 11 of the 27 books of the New Testament, and not just in passing references. Sometimes entire chapters are dedicated to him. He's mentioned repeatedly and prominently. In a sense, Christian faith doesn't start with Christ, but really begins with the first man to respond to God by faith. And that was Abraham, the first man to respond to God by faith. How do you like those bagels, huh? 
And this is what Paul points to. Well, who was Abraham? You go back to Genesis chapter 12. And the Lord calls out to Abram, as he was then known, and says, Abram, you are to leave and go from your country and from your family and from your land and go to a land that I will show you. The Lord promises to make of Abraham a great nation, to make his name great and to bless him. That great nation was to be the nation of Israel. The problem was, Abraham and his wife Sarah had no children, and they were too old to be having children anymore. So how is a great nation going to come from you if you don't have anybody to continue your line? Well, Abraham did go, like the Lord said. He left as the Lord called him to do, stepping out in faith. And in the New Testament book of Hebrews, it says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. But as time went on, he and Sarah still remained childless. Years went on, and God comes again to Abraham, tells him, don't be afraid. Tells him, I am your shield, and Abraham, your reward will be very great. And Abraham says, yeah, Lord, about that reward. And he brings up the fact that the only person he has in his house who's a male is Eliezer, who is a slave boy who's not even from his bloodline. And he wonders, is, is the great nation going to come from him? But the Lord says no, that Abraham will have a son from his own bloodline. And that is when the Lord leads Abram outside the tent. And he says, I want you to take a look at the sky. It was one of those brilliant Middle Eastern night wilderness skies. Not a lot of fires and lights taking away from all that was up in the heavens. It was just brilliant with stars. And the Lord promised Abraham, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky you see right now. And it says, and Abraham believed the Lord. And it was reckoned, the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Key verse in the Bible right there. God declared Abram to be in a right relationship with him right then and there because Abraham believed. That word reckoned is is an accounting word. For Abraham to believe God's word that he would have children and that his line would be as big as the stars in the sky was like opening a bank account. And God transferred money into his account. And when Abraham got his first bank statement back, it said, right with God, good, justified, accepted and approved by me. Or, in the words of the great Bob Marley, everything's going to be all right. Abram, everything's going to be all right. You're all right with me. You're good with me because you believe. In Genesis 15, Abraham comes in not believing. He just doesn't see this thing happening. All he sees is Eliezer. In verse 6, by verse 6, he believes. And the Lord counts that as being good for him. What changes in Abram? Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar and teacher, puts it very eloquently. Abraham has now permitted God not to be a hypothesis about the future 
with the voice around which his life is organized. He has now permitted God not to be a hypothesis about the future, but the voice around which his life is organized. For how many of us is God just merely a hypothesis? He is a possibility. He's a maybe, a maybe not. We aren't willing to commit. We might have our toe in the water. We might be willing to even come up to our waist. But we're not going to go all in with him. God is merely a hypothesis. And that is not belief, nor is that faith. Abraham came to believe the word of God. He's no longer measuring reality by what he can see, by what he can touch, or by what he can control. Because he had faith, didn't guarantee that all his problems and challenges would go away. But Abraham responds in faith to what God has said, which is a specific promise, a specific response to a concrete promise from a known promise maker. Abraham believed that God could make a future out of a present where all the resources have been exhausted and run out because he has no children and he and Sarah are too old. Let me just make a couple observations about Abraham's faith. First of all, it wasn't without questioning or wondering. Abraham struggled to understand and he came to a place, though, where he settled that God is God and if God is who he is, then I'm going to believe that. Second thing he believed, Abraham holds this faith in the face of barrenness. His wife, Sarah, is too old to have children now. And third, Abraham's faith is merely in the word. It's in a word. That is all Abraham has, a promise of God. For Abraham, the issue was a child leading to a great nation. That's not our issue. For us, the issue is our salvation, our being right with God, our peace with God. Around whose voice is your life organized? The commercials, the political pundits, social media, the adversary, the Lord. Who are you listening to these days? Abraham's faith was in the promise of the Lord. Remember back in Galatians 2, Paul said, I'm living my life by faith in the Son of God. When we finally realize that our efforts are exhausted, that we can't do it on our own, and we wholly trust God, who is the promise maker, then we are made right with God. And Paul says, we become children of Abraham. You didn't know you were Jewish, did you? That's right, being in Abraham's line is not about whether you're circumcised or you do the right religious ceremonies or that you even have Jewishness in your bloodline. It's about faith. Can we trust the promise of God? The Lord never promises our lives will be easy. He never makes the promise anywhere that we will never experience pain or suffering. He never promises that we will be a success in this world or that we will be rich Or that we will have model good looks because some of us just have that naturally. What does the Lord promise? I'll tell you just three, maybe four. The Lord promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now the verse 
That verse comes in the context of learning to be content and not worrying about whether we have enough money or not. It is an anti-greed promise. When we don't fall in love with money and we refrain from that, we can trust God that he will always be with us to help us no matter what the circumstances. The Lord promised that all who believe in him, I will raise them up at the last day. That's Christ's promise of resurrection. We can't see it yet. It's a matter of faith, isn't it? At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus gives that promise, that those great words, I am the resurrection and the life. The person who believes in me, even though he dies, will live, and whoever lives and believes in me will love, never die. But then he gives a question that is often left out of that very statement. And at the end of that, Jesus asks, do you believe this? Are you going to believe this? The Lord promises to forgive our sins. Peter preached at Pentecost for people to change the direction of their lives, to be baptized, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away. As for forgiveness, that promise is elsewhere in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins. He'll cleanse us from all our righteousness. That's a promise. The Holy Spirit is a promise. As a matter of fact, he's referred to elsewhere as the promise of the Father. You know, we need the Spirit of God more than we need anything else in our lives. You may think you need patience more than anything else. You may think you need to be more loving more than anything else. You may think that you need healing or you may think that you need some material object, or I just need more time in my life. That's what I need more than anything else. If we have the Spirit of God, patience and love are a fruit of that Spirit. That will come. If we have the Spirit of God, He will give us the strength and the endurance and the contentment to live while waiting for whatever healing or change that we need, or with He will help us to live in whatever it is we think we need so badly that isn't coming yet. The Spirit of God gives us a God perspective. The Spirit is the person of God who lives in us. He breathes the life of God in us. He is God's presence with us at all times and in all places. And you, when you are filled with the Spirit of God, you have all your need, and God promises to give Him to us. Paul writes, it's by faith that we receive the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, the life of God in us. He can't be bought. He can't be earned. He can't be manufactured. He is the gift of God who comes by faith. Faith is trusting the promise of God. It is believing God because he said so. No, you can't see everything. No, all the evidence isn't before your eyes. And no, you don't always know how it's going to turn out. That's the way it was for Abraham. You know what? That's why it's called faith. Notice how many times Paul quotes the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures in Galatians in that little passage we read. Seven times directly, a couple other allusions. One of those quotes is from Deuteronomy, which says, everyone who doesn't do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Well, that's everybody, because no one has kept God's rules and regulations and promises 
perfectly. You break the law, you are cursed. Paul proclaims that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us on the cross. He redeemed us so that we could become children of Abraham, children of the promise, not the law. So when you see that cross, do you believe that is enough? Do you believe that is the only way I'm going to be right with God? Yes, there are days when we feel absolutely discouraged about our faith walk, and we're probably pretty convinced that God must be done with us, given our behavior, given our thoughts, given the things that we have done. Do you believe his promise in those moments about his forgiveness and his love and his grace as experienced in his son, Jesus Christ? And will you believe and say, I'm going to trust in that? Robert Farrer Capon, the late Episcopalian priest, said this. The life of grace is not an effort on our part to achieve a goal we set ourselves. It is a continually renewed attempt simply to believe that someone else has done all the achieving that is needed and to live in relationship with that person, whether we achieve or not. If that doesn't seem like much to you, you're right, it isn't. And as a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It's not even our life at all, but the life of that someone else rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. God in his grace gave a rich blessing and inheritance to Abraham. God in his grace gives a rich blessing and inheritance to us. We are asked not to have faith in our own effort, but to have faith in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. We are asked to believe that promise. We are asked to believe God and to organize our lives around him. Let's pray. Lord, keep us from being foolish enough to think that our achievements can earn our way with you. Give us the faith of Abraham so that as we gaze on the cross of Christ, we would trust that. Help us to live by faith in the Son of God and his love for us so that our lives might be blessed. Amen.